man and a woman swing by their necks, hanged from a pine tree near the Sweetwater River in the territory of Wyoming. They were a husband and a wife named Jim Avril and Ellen Watson, and they were lynched when they attempted to fight back against wealthy cattle barons who wanted to take their land for themselves. Occurring in 1889, just 11 months before Wyoming would become the 44th state of the Union, the brutal killings of Ellen Watson and Jim Averill would pave the way for future violence in what would turn into one of the largest range wars in United States history. This is the story of the lynching at Sweetwater. Welcome to Shaking America. This episode's sources include Cattle Kate by Jana Boomersbach, Devil's Gate by Tom Rea, The Banditti of the Plains by Asa Shin Mercer, The Johnson County War by John W. Davis, The Smithsonian American History Department, and The Wyoming Historical Society. This episode will be part of a larger two-part story about the Powder River Range War. Wyoming after the Civil War was seen as a land of great opportunity. The railroads had opened the floodgates for the wealth of the East to rush west to the prairies. A wide variety of people, from established businessmen to newly arrived immigrants, traveled west in hopes of starting their own farms. Books and media, such as How to Get Rich on the Plains, painted the western frontier as a place where fortune was only a few days' hard work away. That, of course, wasn't exactly true. While settlers could claim land ownership under various land acts, such as the Homestead Act or the Desert Land Entry Act, the actual enforcement of those laws was another matter. Because when we call Wyoming the frontier, we are calling it that in the truest sense of the word. Very few people lived in the wide open expanses of the plains, and what settlements existed were rarely big enough to be called towns. Wyoming at this time had no real government and no real effective law enforcement. The de facto government was the Wyoming Stock Growers Association a group of rich cattle barons who owned large companies controlling huge swaths of land. These exceptionally well-funded corporations often would band together to found settlements that they would then essentially own. Company towns. Company towns would own practically all of the local businesses and would serve as the main employer of the settlement. The Wyoming Stock Growers Association, which from here on out we will refer to simply as the association, controlled the mail the newspapers, and the law if there was any, effectively owning much of the territory and putting it under corporate control. The association included influential and wealthy people, such as the future governor of the territory, several future senators, and the territory's chief justice. The association dominated the southern half of the state, while smaller family operations, raising small herds of cattle alongside a variety of crops, were more common in the northern half of the state. An article from the Smithsonian states, The frontier may have looked bare and open, but it was already becoming part of this corporate dynamic. Seeking to further expand their power and source of income, the association began encroaching further north, using their money and resources to either scare off or kill off their outmatched competition. They profited off of the cheap labor provided by the cowboys and the free land that was technically owned by the federal government on the open range. Albert John Bothwell was one of these association members. Born into a wealthy family in Iowa, Bothwell was described as well-read and well-educated, and especially influenced by the theories of social Darwinism. But beyond all else, he was known for his ambition. Sensing economic opportunity, Bothwell traveled in the August of 1888 to Wyoming Territory, and joined the association with the intention of growing his fortune. He attempted to found a company town named after him, Bothwell, on the Sweetwater River, 
and quickly bought 1,500 head of cattle and brought in over 100 men and ordered them to start building a railroad and prospecting for oil. Most of Bothwell's schemes fell apart. There were simply not enough nearby towns to make building a railroad worth the effort, and his men failed to strike any oil. Bothwell, as a town, only ever housed the 100 men that he brought over for labor and failed to grow any further. So, like any good CEO, Bothwell pivoted and turned all of his efforts into cattle raising. He began to use an infamous association tactic, which was fencing in huge areas of land and hiring armed gunmen to patrol it, despite having no legal claim to any of the land. This was seen as a cheap and easy way for cattle barons to acquire giant amounts of land in very little time. In just a year's time, Bothwell had illegally fenced over 20 square acres of land, much of which was legally owned by either the federal government or small family farm. One of those farms was owned by Ellen Watson and Jim Averell. Not much is known about the early life of Jim Averell, but Ellen Watson's life story has been told a few times. She was born the child of Scottish immigrants in Ontario around 1860 and spoke with a thick Scottish accent. Tall, independently minded, and unusually outspoken for a woman of this time period, Ellen Watson escaped her first husband, a violent drunk, in her early 20s, and headed west to find a new life. She began working as a clerk in the railroad office in Brawling, Wyoming, which is where she met Jim Averill. Averill was more bookish and softer-spoken than Watson, but the two fell in love anyway. By 1886, the two had secretly married and run a general store that doubled as a post office together. Watson kept her last name for legal reasons. Land claims were made under last names, and the fact that Watson and Averill kept their names separate was what allowed them to make two land claims side by side. By 1889, Watson and Averill's business was looking as though it was well on its way to being a success. Between both homesteads, they had 320 acres of land, 40 head of cattle, and the store was making money feeding and outfitting the local cowboys. The couple attempted to file for their own cattle brand in order to mark their herd legally, they hired a neighbor, Frank Buchanan, to mend the fences and help with the animals, and as they settled into the homesteading community, Watson began mending the clothes of the cowboys as an extra source for income, while Averell became the area's only notary as well as the local justice of the peace. Watson and Averell's early success story, that of immigrants founding businesses, is the epitome of the American dream. But Bothwell didn't see it that way. He looked at Watson and Averell, and he saw them as competition. He first tried to buy their land, offering about half its worth. They refused him, and Bothwell began using different, less upfront methods of taking their land. First, he ordered his men to fence off areas of Watson's land in the night, hoping that the fencing would be enough to claim that it was his. When they tore his fences down, he started to have his cowboys shadow the Watson Averell ranch at night in order to intimidate the couple. Still, they refused to back down. Averell wrote to the newspaper in Casper, Wyoming, condemning the cattle baron for attempting to squeeze out a small family business. It seemed as though the conflict between the settlers and Bothwell was about to escalate. In the winter of 1889, a particularly long drought followed by a cold, hard winter filled with storms devastated the Wyoming cattle industry. Several large companies went bankrupt, and countless settlers were forced to give up their dream of running a ranch and instead fled the territory, selling their belongings and heading back home defeated. Watson and her husband survived, but saw much of their herd perish to the elements. To remedy this, the couple bought about 20 head of cattle from some immigrants fleeing the area. Some of the cattle were unbranded, meaning that they could possibly have been free roam cattle that the immigrants captured during one of the winter storms. Watson quickly branded the cattle with her brand and incorporated them into her herd. Bothwell was also hit hard by the economic crash of the cattle industry, but he responded in a different way. Hiring a professional detective, Bothwell began to search for ways to claim local settlers' cattle as his own, instead of buying more. The detective began snooping around the Watson Avril homestead and discovered the recently branded cattle that the couple had bought off the immigrants. 
Bachwell quickly realized that the fact that the cattle had fresh brands meant that it was possible that Watson could have stolen them from the government lands he used for grazing his cattle. He saw this finally as an excuse to get rid of the small farm that had evaded his grasp. Despite having no real evidence, he rounded up a posse of vigilantes and headed towards the Watson Averell Ranch. What happened next was quick and brutal. Bothwell's crew tore down Watson's fencing, driving her cattle out into the open range. They grabbed Watson at gunpoint outside of her home, tied her up, and forced her into the back of a wagon. They then began to kick down the door of Jim Averill, shouting at him that they had a warrant. When he asked to see the warrant, they burst inside, guns out and at the ready. What could have turned into a shootout quickly de-escalated when they told Jim that they already had his wife captive. They forced him into the wagon where they had chained Ella and told the couple that they were headed to Rawling to go to trial for cattle rustling. But Bothwell's plan was never to take them to trial. Instead, they drove the couple about two miles away from their cabin and found a sturdy tree. At this point, Buchanan, one of Watson and Avril's farmhands, began shooting at Bothwell, but the cattle baron's men forced him to retreat in a hail of gunfire. Without trial or ceremony, the couple was hung side by side at gunpoint from the same tree. Buchanan rode hard to the nearest town, Casper, and notified the local sheriff and justice of peace. It would be two days before law enforcement would get to Sweetwater, and by that point, the bodies had already started to swell and decompose. In those two days, the association already had begun work distorting the story. They had their newspapers paint Watson as a known cattle rustler named Cattle Kate, who ran a widespread ring of criminals. They claimed she was a prostitute and a crossdresser, all in an attempt to slander her name and justify her murder. This, of course, ignored that there was no evidence to prove Watson stole cattle at all, or ever ran a widespread criminal ring. There's no evidence that she had any history of prostitution. And while she did wear men's clothes, that was only in order to effectively do farm work. Despite the lack of truth in these articles, the propaganda paid off for the association. Before the charges were even filed against the six men who lynched the settlers, public opinion was already set against Watson and Avril. The association distorted history so effectively that by 1895, just six years after the lynching, the fledgling Pinkerton Detective Agency would use Cattle Kate as an example of lawlessness in the Wild West, calling her the Queen of the Cattle Rustlers. Meanwhile, the men who killed Watson and Averell never went to trial. No one could find two key witnesses, as the farmhand Buchanan disappeared mysteriously after the lynching, and anyone else that saw the event was participating. The grand jury was made up of 16 people, seven of which were members of the association. Because of this, the case was dismissed. In recent years, historians have uncovered the truth surrounding the events of the lynching of Ellen Watson. Here's Wyoming historian Jonna Boomersbach explaining the situation. Virtually every historian who's now looked at this case, and there are plenty from, from Wyoming itself, and that's where you look. You look to the people who really understand their culture. You look to people who really who live there, who have a stake there. You know, they do have a dog in this fight. Yes. You know, they want to know what really happened. And there are still those in Wyoming who want to believe that Ella Watson was a terrible woman and she deserved what she got, but almost every historian there that living now um, is saying to them, this was a total horrible miscarriage of justice. Watson's only surviving niece was quoted as stating she did not want her aunt to be remembered as a hellion of a woman, but as a pioneer who got tangled in corporate power struggles and land rustling on the wild western frontier. Jim Averill's brother, immediately after the lynching, told reporters it was a cruel and cold-blooded murder. The men who did the deed wanted his homestead and desert claim, with its fine water ditch running through it, the result of five years of hard labor. But even with the association's best efforts, there were consequences to the lynching. The brutal killings would spark a resistance movement within the small ranching community of Wyoming. 
they saw how one of their own could be dragged from their home and murdered for not surrendering to the cattle barons, and some of them began to plan to fight back. This would eventually lead to the Johnson County War, otherwise known as the War on Powder River, which we will cover next episode. Thanks for listening to Shaking America.